0: Uh, so, like, suppose you hear some good financial advice, like, "Hey, you shouldn't uh, try to pick stocks to beat the market." The, the mistake is not acting on that information right away. So maybe what you should do is you should go, you know, revisit your strategy for investing and and decide what's the right path forward. But if instead you just sort of don't think about it or you don't see the the flaw in in what you're doing, like you can you can easily kind of know in your head the the good advice that you're hearing, but then you can not act on it for multiple years and
1: you're listening to the millionaires unveiled podcast where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires we'll unveil their decisions their strategies and their current portfolio allocation now to your hosts clark sheffield and jace mattinson welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires and podcast this is episode number 280 Hope everybody's having a, a great week. Yeah, it's been a little wild here with the weather here in Texas. We're basically shut down for a few days last week, and uh, I'm sure it affected several people that were traveling anyway, if they're on American or Southwest, as two big hubs go through DFW and, and Love. But at any rate, getting back to uh, the norm here a little bit, and it'll uh, yeah, we'll begin uh, rocking and rolling here into February. So. Wanted to discuss a couple of things. Our guest today has a couple unique things that he has in terms of compensation package in regards to RSUs that we've talked a little bit about on the show before, uh, but are, are are pretty common in, in in some sorts of industries and companies. But the other thing that wanted to get a little bit more in depth on is, is he has a significant amount of money uh, in retirement accounts already, especially for being in his early 30s and he participates in what's called a mega backdoor Roth and basically what what that is is he's able to through his employer make after-tax contributions to his 401k and then essentially roll those into an IRA or a Roth if he decides to. So anyway, that's what he's been doing from a from a standpoint of maxing out his retirement accounts and so he does have a significant balance uh, relative to his age for that. I was doing a little research and Vanguard said that about 12% employees this is back in 2020, 12% of employees maxed out 401k plans that had access to them. And about 10% of those that had after tax ability, meaning they can make contributions after tax to that 401k, participated. So it's a very small subset of probably the population in general that even has access to this. I don't, I don't know how many employers would, offer this but those that do only 10% or or even participate in it so a very very small subset of the population is doing this in this case our, our guest this week has access to it and has been doing it and that's how he's been able to accumulate such a significant amount in his retirement accounts at such an early age so interesting thing to kind of dive into if you're interested in that it's, it's really a way for those that want to be you know super savers uh, to be able to contribute um, you know outside of the traditional uh, max contributions that the uh, IRS publishes and stuff there's there's all sorts of tricks and things you can do and strategies so he's participated in that and just wanted to highlight that a little bit given that some of we haven't really talked about on the show that i remember and, and also the rsu's um we could probably do a whole episode just on those but uh, it gets pretty complicated but basically it's a it's a piece of his compensation uh from an equity standpoint and they vest monthly in his case and and he's able to sell those and, and turn them into cash so it's a big piece of his compensation package so and this week is in um uh, And his name's Christopher. He's in his early 30s. Net worth is just over 1.1 million. He's got about $160,000 of of that in cash. And then the rest are investments, about $930,000 in in investments. Uh, $30,000, that's in an HSA, which is a pretty high balance for for somebody his age. And then the rest is broken up into those uh, retirement accounts. He also has $17,000 at 529. dollars So great discussion with him. One thing that we did not include in his net worth that he does have is, is those RSUs, and he said there's worth uh, that he's been granted at this point about 740,000. But uh, as long as he's employed, they vest, and he can do whatever he wants with them as they vest in terms of selling them or keeping them, uh, you know, in that stock with that with his company. But if he leaves or gets fired or whatever, um, he loses them. So interesting uh, kind of topics and discussion that we'll have with uh, with Christopher this week. Really excited for this episode. Last week we had Jerry's net worth of $2 million, mainly invested in alternative asset classes uh, like real estate notes and gold and silver and whatnot. So great episode uh, with uh, Jerry's, much more of a contrarian investor compared to what we normally have on the show. So if you're interested in that, uh, go check that out. It's episode 279. Once again, if you'd like to be on the show, send us an email, millionairesandbail@gmail.com at gmail.com. Also looking for that 300th episode out there still uh, somebody maybe has a significant level of net worth, uh, we'd love to interview you and, and kind of get to know somebody who's who's done things on a, on a completely different uh, level than maybe a majority of our guests. We always learn something new from them, even uh, if, if if we don't have that level of net worth. So without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Christopher.
2: So Christopher, thanks for coming on. Welcome to the show.
0: Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's uh. Great to have this opportunity to share my story, and and also I've kind of been able to self reflect a little bit from uh, from from this interview.
2: Well, we're appreciative you're you're willing to take the time and share with us. So tell us a little bit about you, just a little quick thirty second, one minute overview about who we're talking with now.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's really great to be on this show and uh, get to share my story. I'm a senior software engineer. I'm currently working at one of the large companies in the Bay Area, one of the Fang companies. And uh, I'm married with uh, one kid. Been married for six years. Uh, Currently living with my in-laws, who are helping us raise our kid. And.
2: uh, Oh yeah, that's great. And and what is your current net worth?
0: uh, Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm at uh, 1.103 million um, as of a couple weeks ago.
2: Okay, so we'll call it 1.1. And I know you're one of our, our younger millionaires, so I think that's interesting and something to note here. So let's let's jump into allocation first, Christopher, and then we'll go back through the story a little bit. So how is the one point one just big bucket items broken up?
0: Sure. So I have, yeah, so I guess first thing is the emergency fund that's uh, it's in checking and savings accounts plus a handful of cash minus any outstanding credit card balances. That's eighteen thousand. And then I've never bought a house and I've been saving up for a house for multiple years, like several years. And uh, I have 140,000 in a savings account that's allocated for a down payment, and uh, and then I have 17,000 in a five in a 529 account, and that's in stocks. I think it's 60% U.S., 40% international, uh, and I I track that separately because I do plan to give it away at some point. And uh, everything else I consider to be my investments, and that's uh, 928,000. By account type, that's 30,000 in an HSA, 290,000 in traditional uh, 401ks, and then 370,000 in Roth IRAs and 401ks, and 235,000 in savings and brokerage accounts. Um, by asset allocation, I have 38% in the U.S. stock market, 32% international. 20% in a US small in the US small caps and then 10% in cash or bonds. It's about 50-50 on cash and bonds. And uh, it's also like not part of my assets or net worth, but I also have unvested RSUs from my employer and I, I kind of think that's important because it gives me stock market exposure in addition to my savings. And currently I have 740,000 in unvested RSUs.
2: Wow. And, and do you have restrictions on that on how long you have to hold them?
0: Uh, they vest monthly. So most of that is from my initial grants and it'll finish vesting in the next two years. Um, there's, there's some rules about like the time of the month when you can sell them, but, uh, for the most part, they vest monthly and they, they count as cash and as, as income, they count as cash and then you can, you can sell them, uh, which is what I do.
2: Yeah. So you sell them all right away. You don't, hold, yeah. you don't let them sit in the market at all. How come?
0: Uh, there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. There's actually, you know, there's been several, several people working on the arguments for why it's good to sell. I mean, you you already have high exposure to uh, the risks of your company just because of
2: mm-hmm. your employment
0: through them. And then you also have, right. that's just a lot, like a lot of money to have in a single company. And if you do sell them, when you get them, there's, uh, there's no disadvantage, you don't have any penalties, you don't have any capital gains or anything.
2: Gotcha. So, I mean, props to you here Christopher on being pretty well allocated and diversified. I mean, especially on the HSA. The HSA is something that Jason and I don't hear we think enough. So, props to you. I mean, you said close to 30,000, right, on the HSA?
0: Yeah, um it's it's pretty nice and I think one thing I like about my company is they have they have like internal discussions about like how to invest and how to use uh the the tools that are available. So, their default health plan goes hand in hand with an HSA, and it's it's recommended, and almost everybody at the company, I would assume, is using this HSA. Uh, so the employer puts 2,000 in every year, um, and then I put in the the rest to max it out. And so I've gone from, I think I had 1,000 in the HSA when I joined my current employer two years ago, and then just in the last three calendar years, I've got it up to 30,000.
2: So Christopher the I mean great job on the HSA. The the thing that's really interesting to me on your allocation is you're young and you have almost $650,000 in retirement accounts. Oh, uh, yes. 375 in the Roth, almost 300 in the traditional. So really it's you know even closer to what is that? Like 675ish? Yeah. So um how did you get that much in there?
0: Yeah, I guess that's that's I mean, there was basically two paths. There's like, do you start putting it in real estate or do you put it in stocks? And since I was going the stocks route, it was basically trying to max everything I could. Uh, now, it did take me like a first, it took me a couple years to get in the habit of savings. But after the first couple years of working, like I really started to max out all the accounts. So I've been maxing out the, um, uh, the 401k since maybe 2012 or 2013. And then I've been maxing out the IRA the same amount of time. And I've been maxing out my wife's IRA since 20, uh, 2015, and she's had a 401k for the last couple of years. And then also, I've been able to do the uh, mega backdoor Roth for the, the for the last couple of years.
2: Wow. So you've done the okay. So you did what, let's call it 185 or 19,000 each per year, right? So that gets you 38. Then you do 55 in the Roth. That's another 11. So that gives you 50-ish. Is that that's what you've been doing for the last several years?
0: Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, like, so this year, for example, so it's 56 or so thousand in my 401k and then 19,000 or so in my wife's 401k and then two backdoor Roths, uh, two backdoor Roth IRAs as well. So that's Oh yeah, like 11, now 000. now you've
2: got higher income and you can't do a traditional or you can't do the yeah. regular IRA, right? So you got to go backdoor. Okay. Makes sense. And, and are you happy with your company's offerings and what you can invest in through the retirement accounts?
0: Uh, yeah, it's pretty good. It's, and and uh, I'm using a, a total, like a target date retirement fund.
2: Okay. So you have, let me just push on your allocation a little bit. You have, you, you said, I heard in one 40% international on another, it was like 33 or 34, maybe big picture for international holdings. Is that right?
0: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. 32. So how come,
2: how come so much in international or do you, maybe you say Clark, that's mm-hmm. not so
0: much. I don't know what <laughs> you mean. <laughs> yeah. There's I know there's like some difference of opinion on how much should be there. Um, yeah, I think so. If, if you're trying to match sort of like a like a real like matching how much international is really out there in the world versus U.S., it would be closer to like 45 percent international. Um, and then you scale it back a little bit because, of course, we're living in the U.S. and, you know, we're we're buying stuff in U.S. dollars and such. So uh, just based on that, um, I went with 32 percent international. It's. It's kind of similar to uh to how the five two nine breaks it up. And that's um it's based on some like popular you know, pop- popular asset asset allocation that Vanguard recommends.
2: Gotcha. So yeah, of your just to reiterate here, one point one million net worth, you got about six seventy-five in retirement accounts, some of that in a Roth, some <coughs> of that in a traditional, brokerage account with another couple hundred or one eighty-five, and then cash. So how come you haven't bought a home? You you talked a little bit about that at the beginning or how come no real estate investments? And I guess, is that in the plan for the future?
0: Yeah, it's um it's been really one thing after the next. So at one point I tried to buy a duplex and it was a little bit out of my price range. That was in like late 2013. Um, So I, I think the problem back then was I really just didn't have a plan. Like when I found out I couldn't Afford that duplex. I didn't pursue it. I didn't pursue like getting a, a smaller place or a, a condo or something. Um, and then by 2015, um, I got married. I moved into a studio with my wife. And when I, whenever I checked the cost of renting the studio versus buying like a two-bedroom, it it always favored the uh, the renting because it was such a small place. Um, so be, because of that, I just kind of year after year I decided to keep renting. And then I think I got kind of ready, ready to actually buy maybe like within six months before the pandemic hit. And we are kind of waiting for my wife's grad school to finish up because we lived right next to that school. And um, so we are basically getting ready to buy up, uh, getting ready to buy. And then the pandemic hit. So we relocated to another city with a lower cost of living. Uh, We're currently in Tracy, California, kind of about one hour outside the Bay Area. Just because it's a new city, we decided to rent. And uh, yeah. at, you know, at this point, we don't really know what city to move to. It sort of depends on employment options, especially for sure. my wife. Sure. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, and
2: and yeah. she works out outside the home full-time as well, right?
0: Uh, yeah. So she she graduated about a year ago, and she's been working full-time since then currently looking at a job transition. And so it's, it's unclear what city the office would be in and, and whether or not should be working from home. It's kind of difficult to decide where to buy right now.
2: Okay. So Christopher, you got the RSUs, the, the stock units. How come you don't include that in your net worth?
0: Um, just because they're unvested. Um, so as they vest each each month, it comes in as income. And if I left the company right now, I wouldn't get any of that money. Um, so it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's just, um, you know, I'll, I'll get it when it best I guess.
2: How, how does it play out if they were to fire you? And I'm not saying just for performance. Would you get any of that money?
0: The only so in those cases, no. I as far as I remember, there is one perk where if like in case I die, um, they do they do pay that out as some sort of like alternative to life insurance. Um, but that, I think that's just sort of them. Offering a benefit, it's it's really not my uh, not my equity until it vests, as far as far as mm-hmm. I know.
2: And and how much vests monthly?
0: So uh, so my initial uh, the initial grant that I got was five hundred thousand dollars of stock, and then that vests monthly over four years, and that appreciated a bit. So now now it's vesting at like over a hundred thousand a year, but monthly, so so you know like ten thousand a month. And then I have additional refreshers that I get each year. So, so far, I've got one since I've been at the company for about two years. And um, and that's vesting at like, uh, I think, two, about like 2000 per month.
2: Awesome. Awesome. Good for you. So,
1: Christopher, I kind of want to go back to, to the beginning a little bit here. How did this all begin and maybe sprinkle in there what it's <laughs> like living in a, in a high cost of living area and what that looks like you know, as it relates to your mindset and developing wealth and saving
0: Sure. Well, that's, that's a lot to unpack in that question. The, so I, I guess like in terms of mindset, one thing I've noticed is that there's a lot of money in this area. And so when you have a million dollars, it's it's sort of average. Um, well, at least if, if you're in tech, like you might as well assume that, you know, you're a millionaire and all your coworkers might be millionaires too. You know, there's also, for, for example, my parents and some other people in that generation often have one or $2 million in home equity. So the, the mindset for me is like a million, um, like a million dollars is a good start, but it's really that, like, that's it. Um, not, you know, not close to financial independence or, uh, or any sort of like affluence, I guess. Um, I guess that was part of your question. I mean, I, I don't know if I might've missed other part of it.
1: No, totally. So I mean, growing up in an area where basically you assume or it's it's pretty well assumed that it, everyone's a millionaire, whether it's they've got a million dollars in investments or they've got a million dollars in home equity just because of the nature of that area and what's what's taken place over the last thirty and 40 years, how has living in that environment played into your mindset and developing and building wealth? And maybe for our mm-hmm. listeners, You know, and some of the things that you shared with us in in writing in is, hey, you know what, a million bucks for me is like, I mean, that's just kind of the the tip of the iceberg. It's just kind of the really the base level starting point in a lot of ways, just because of cost of living and what you're surrounded by. So being as young as you are, I mean, obviously, you're around a lot of others that are very wealthy, too, at a very young age in a lot of cases where maybe in other parts of the country that's not as common. How is that? Played into to your mindset and and what you are and, and you know get on your journey
0: yeah I think well it's every every time I hear um you know somebody on a podcast talk about their budget I have to sort of translate it to what things cost in this area to kind of understand uh what they're talking about but I think the I mean the real difference uh that I see in my budget is just rent I mean like for example, groceries for our family of five is like a thousand or twelve hundred a month. It's it's not it's not like way more than it might be in other areas. So I, I think for it's on the expense side, it's mostly about rent. I think living in this area, you do get used to uh, you know, you see like Teslas and, and BMWs and Maseratis like all over and you just kind of get used to it. And uh you, you just kinda of have to acknowledge that. It's worth it to some people and not worth it to other people to
1: own those. So do you look at building wealth in a different mindset because it is so expensive? I mean, when you go to negotiate salary for your career or or just a comp package in general, are you going after? your rsus every single time or would, would that be pretty normal to, to ask for and then in terms of asking and, and putting together a package for for you personally as it relates to you know cash income how does that go about is that something that hey if you're living in this area it's a non-starter if somebody's not giving you some rsus
0: yeah it's yeah let, let's see so i guess if i'm looking for job offers i'm looking at what is the market rate and I'm looking at what companies are offering and you kind of have to you kind of have to like discard what you think might be a good number and just look at what they're paying and and go for that because if it was up like if it was up to me like I would accept a you know a $100,000 salary that sounds like a lot of money but then when these when there's like information online that says these companies are offering $300,000 then you know you just sort of have to you know, play greedy and, until you go through the, the offer process.
2: So I want to shift gears a little bit. Where
1: do you go from here? Is there a target net worth? Do you plan on building quite a bit of that through RSUs in the future?
0: Yeah. So what I like right now about my situation is my savings rate. It's between like 200 and 300,000 a year is what I'm able to save. And uh, so I'm I'm kind of want to be defensive about that. So, for example, uh, if I rent, I might be able to rent for 3000 If I buy a place, I might be paying like 9000 PITI plus uh, maintenance. So, I'm I'm like a little bit defensive. Like I don't want to go buy a home and mess up my savings rate because I think the savings rate is, is uh, in a good place. And, you know, anything that would uh, kind of get in the way of that is uh, something that I need to be like cautious about. Um, so mostly my, my goal now is kind of just to like run through the career and keep the savings rate as, as long as I can. And, uh, like, I think, I think my career is, is going fine, but there's, there still should be promotions in my future. And my wife's career is just getting off, off the ground really. So I think she has promotions and, a uh, you know, a long career ahead. So it's just kind of running through those and, uh, like keeping the family running as well. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, you've obviously done. Tremendously well. So congrats on your success. As you you mentioned, the savings rate, as much as you're comfortable sharing, normally we ask this at the end, but I think it it fits in here. What's been your range of household income since you started working?
0: Yeah. So I was working at startups for eight years and I started as a new college grad making 80,000. And then by the end of those eight years, I was a senior software engineer making 180,000. And then when I got, um, so after that, I started, Joined this uh, company that I'm currently working at, and the offer I got was it was 190000 base, 15% bonus, and then the RSUs were $500,000 vesting over four years, uh, so it was like $340,000. And then additionally, like the stock, more, the the stock has gone up since then; it's doubled in two years. And uh, I've also gotten the annual refresher on top of that, so I made like $360, and the household income was $420. And this year it should, like household income should be over 500.
2: Wow. Wow. Good for you. And you say over 40% of that?
0: Yeah. Um, I'm, I've am i kind of been tracking. So I'm, I'm looking every quarter, I'm looking at net worth and savings rate, and I'm doing my re- rebalancing. And I'm looking at the savings rate over the past four quarters, and it's, it's gone up past 200,000. And in the last four quarters, I saved 270,000, and uh, it should go up until... Until my NRC grant that I got in 2019 is done vesting.
2: Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing because when I look at your, you sent us a couple notes before the show here, and your net worth in December of 2019 was $475,000. So let's call it. And then it's just gone up from there. And part of that obviously has been, as we talked about before the show, part of that has been from these contributions, just putting in cash. And part of that's been, from market growth, but
0: yeah, it's a it was a unique experience and it was a little bit weird to spend several years saving like forty to seventy thousand a year and thinking that was really good and then seeing it kind of go up exponentially at, at this point. So it's very very like bizarre experience. It kind of makes me worry like. You know, I got the money so fast. Is it all gonna, you know, easy come, easy go? Is it all gonna be gone the next day? <laughs> yeah. Um, is it
2: gonna be gone just as fast?
0: Yeah. So in in December 2019, my net worth was 475, and then in March 2020, so I measured this right about exactly at the the bottom of that year, and my net worth is only down to by 5k to 470, and the reason is because in those three months. I got my annual bonus and I maxed out my 401k and got the over $9,000 401k match. And uh, yeah, and and so I was down a lot in the stock market, but I was able to save like over 80,000 that quarter. And then the June 2020 was up to 617,000. Then September 693, December 819, uh, March of this year, it was at 978. And then... uh, yeah, just a couple weeks ago I measured it at 1.1 million.
2: It's yeah, it's amazing. So, how fast do you think you'll get to the 2nd? It obviously depends a lot on what the market does, but what's your take?
0: Yeah, I I try to keep my estimates conservative, so even though I should be able to save well over 200,000, I'm just going to, you know, forecast $200,000 savings rate and then assume the market would be flat, so I should be able to get to 2 million in like 4 years. Four, four and a half years.
2: Yeah, yeah. So let me just piggyback off of you. you' and Jay's conversation uh, just a few minutes ago. You talked about living in, we talked about living in a high cost of living area. You talked about there being a lot of money that people are driving Teslas and Maseratis. How does that influence you? Does it make you want more money? Is it, does it influence you?
0: I, I think there's, I, I think, I don't think there's like this culture where everybody has to match everybody. I feel like there's the group of people that, you know, basically there's the group that budgets and the group that doesn't. And there's these two people kind of intermingled together. And, uh, you know, also, like, software engineers don't dress well. They don't try to, like, put on any appearance. So, uh, you know, sometimes we'll see, like, brand-new Lamborghinis at my company's parking lot, which is interesting. But, um, no, I don't don't really think there's a pressure to, like, you know, act, act like, or to look like you belong there. I mean, I, I drive an old car and like there's there's plenty of those and you can even find neighborhoods where the homes are all $2 million, but the cars are all worth like 3000
2: Yeah. What do you drive?
0: Uh, it's a 2008 Ford Focus.
2: Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think it's just an amazing story how fast you've been able to do it. Obviously, a, a big part of it has been your career, right? So is that, if you could point to a couple, your success would it be your career development and how hard you worked at to build your income
0: yeah I think I think was a lot of luck on the timing uh I mean I was I grew up in the bay area and I I like I kind of stumbled on computer programming I thought the idea of being able to control the computers was really interesting and I started programming on my dad's like used ti-83 calculator when I was 14 so I just sort of jumped into the field that was, you know, very, very uh, good field to be in and also the right, I was in the right area for that field. So that was all sort of just a positive thing for me. And then another big thing, like, not everybody comes out of college with without debt, so it was, it was pretty great of my parents to, uh, you know, cover my living expenses while I was living at home and commuting to college and to pay for the tuition.
2: And did you go to a state school or was it a more expensive private yeah. school that they paid for?
0: Yeah. I just, uh, I went to San Jose state. Okay. It's uh, yeah.
2: And, and so you mentioned your parents a little bit and your dad, they're programming on his old calculator. Is that, is that how you started learning about personal finance? Did they teach you? Was a lot of this learned on your own?
0: Yeah. It's, it's really hard to pinpoint like where I learned, what I learned. Um, so like timing wise, so I think, so I started working in 2011, in 2012 is when I started saving and then in 2015 is when I kind of picked an asset allocation and started tracking net worth. So it was really, it really took like three to four years for me to figure out that I should be saving and to get it right and to figure out how to invest in that sort of thing. So I think I picked up some from my parents, some from talking to friends and family and some from, you know, the the personal finance Reddit and other websites and, um, you know, podcasts and a couple of books. Do you plan on retiring early at all? The idea came up before. It's it's very interesting. I hear of other people doing it. I I don't think it's for me. But well, I so it's it's not like I'm trying to save up the money so that I can retire. But what I see happening is when I reach age around fifty, uh, my kid would be in around college age. So at that point, when I presumably might have like several million and be able to retire. Uh, At that point, I sort of get to decide if I want to, you know, pack up and start a second career or if I want to keep working. Um, So I guess we'll see when we get there. Is there a target net worth for you at that point? I'm I'm kind of thinking more about the timing than the target net worth, because if I just sort of, like, if I had to make a forecast, like I could be at five or six million at that point when I'm around age 50, and I think that's enough to retire with. And I'm, I'm not sure if I'd feel comfortable retiring, like at age 40, it's just, you know, my kid would be in school and it would kind of be strange, strange timing wise, and probably not too interesting for me. Yeah.
1: Along that path, do you plan on, on buying a house?
0: Yeah. So uh, I've been watching Houses for Sale on, on Zillow for a long time. Um, the idea of buying Rental real estate before a primary residence doesn't doesn't look too like my wife isn't too interested in it. It just kind of seems like the wrong order of operations. So I've been looking for the right time to buy a, a primary residence, and um, like I, I in addition to just trying to figure out which city to buy in, it's also that homes homes here are very expensive compared to the rental price, and uh, there's a lot of people buying because the prices go up and that kind of concerns me and it's it's not really my style like i prefer cash flow but nothing cash flows in the state so it's that's that's kind of a hard thing to get over but i I do plan to buy um i could give you like some example numbers so i i saw this uh condo complex where there was one unit for sale and then an identical unit for rent if i rent it's 2800 if i buy it's 800,000 and so I was looking at like what is like basically what would the cap rate be if that was a rental and it was something like like a a 2.5 cap it was Mm,
1: insane huh
0: yeah it's it's not like it's not it not that interesting to me because even if you buy it the the property tax and the HOA together is over a thousand and then you still got all the other expenses on it
1: yeah it's not it's a crazy (laughs) world out there for sure being in in the bay area Amongst lots of millionaires, is money and investing openly discussed in in the circles you're in, or not so much?
0: I, I think so. I have a group of friends that made a Facebook chat about it in the past. Um, I talk about it with my brother sometimes. Uh, I talk about it with coworkers sometimes. Not not talking about like net worth so much, but maybe how to how to use like the 401k options that our company provides. Yeah, I, th- I think people are in general transparent, like like to some degree. I guess it's like you can find people who feel like sharing it, but you can't go ask everybody how their finances are. Ten years from now, 20
1: years from now, you're worth multi-millions. Is there, you mentioned maybe pursuing another career, is there something out there that, that interests you or intrigues you that, that maybe would be something for a second career?
0: Uh, I don't have one in mind, like in particular, I think... I think like my wife has some plans for what she would do in retirement and I do not yet have, but I think we have like combined, like I'm sure we have various ideas. So I think it'll just be a question of, are we enjoying our careers or not? If we're not enjoying, maybe we look for something else to get into.
1: Would you ever look at geo arbitrage in, in moving somewhere else, you know, down the line, or are you pretty set that, Hey, you know what, I know it's expensive here It just is what it is, and I'm gonna live here and deal with it.
0: Yeah, it's uh. So before the pandemic, uh, I think my only options would have been basically the the Bay Area and Seattle and potentially Austin. And then after the pandemic, with employers changing their policy, it might it might start working out to move to uh, you know some cheaper area. So when I do the math, like I can make the most. I can save the most money each year by being in California or Seattle, I think might come ahead just a little bit. But uh, but at some point, like maybe, you know, maybe five or 10 years later, instead of looking at how much I can save each year, I'll be looking at how much I've already saved versus my cost of living. And and at that point, yeah, yes, I'm I'm open to relocating.
2: Yeah, it makes sense. So Christopher, we talked a little bit about before the show that you, you, obviously you're working, your wife's working full time, you're living with your in-laws who are helping take care of your child. What's you mentioned that was obviously a little bit unique to your story. What's your take there, and and how does that influence both your life and and financially?
0: Uh, yeah. So I think so. Yeah. So we had our first kid in uh, in 2019, and I started budgeting uh, when we were expecting, so in 2018. And it's, it's very interesting to see how much my life changed from 2018 when I started budgeting to now. And I think it's been really good to have the budget over that time so I kind of have a handle on the finances and so things don't get out of hand. Um, so I think it's interesting is when we had our kid at the same time my in-laws moved, uh, they immigrated from China to come live with us and take care of the baby. So our household jumped from two people to being a household of five people, like in one week, and uh, and we're covering the household expenses for for them uh, because they're they're helping us with the baby. So so um, yeah, it's been interesting to see our income grow from like 180,000 in 2018 to you know something like 500,000 this year, and our household grow from two people to five people. Yeah, and 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 our budget, like I can tell you what it is now, but it's like it's only grown like thirty percent in expenses, even as the income tripled and the household size more than doubled. So I think that's that's kind of been the benefit of budgeting is is like not it's the benefit is not finding things to cut out of the budget, but the benefit has been keeping expenses where they are while other things increase.
2: So did you always budget?
0: Yeah, I really just started in 2018. And when yeah. I was like a household of one person, I knew where the money was going. And with a household of two people, I had like a, a kind of good idea of where the money was going. And I think going beyond two people is the tipping point where I really need a budget to understand what's going on. Um, like I don't buy diapers or baby formula, but I know how much those are costing because we have the the budget. So it's it's been sure. it's been useful. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
2: let's wrap it up here and, and we'll we'll do so with some rapid fire questions before we get into some last mistakes and advice. So have you ever used a financial advisor?
0: Uh, I have not. And it's mostly been because I just wanted to get hands on and understand what was going on. But at the same time, I, I do like now, I think maybe a fiduciary would have helped me get on the right track sooner.
2: OK, uh, what about the most expensive car you've ever purchased? How much was that?
0: Uh, yeah, it was around the four thousand dollar range. Um, just four? Yeah,
2: four thousand. Oh, that's cheap, man. Nice. Uh, yeah. What What about meal out? Most expensive meal out that you've paid for?
0: Uh, it was around a three hundred dollar range, and it was kind of a mistake. Like I was, we were splitting the bill, but another some other friends were doing the ordering, and there was sort of a miscommunication. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and you walked away with the three hundred dollar bill. Nice. Uh, we talked about financial goals, any books or products you recommend?
0: I think one book that's been useful. I mean, not, not like the book, but like one, one good book to add to the category was, um, the first book from the investing for adults series by William J. Bernstein. It's, um, it, it puts some ideas in my head that I wasn't thinking about previously and that I hadn't picked up from other podcasts and and stuff. Um, it talks about, transitioning from the wealth accumulation phase to the retirement phase and it talks about funding retirement and uh and that's been yeah that's that's something good to think about i think even you know 10 or 20 years before retirement that can be useful to start start getting prepared
2: so what's been your biggest financial mistake if you have one
0: i mean i guess in opportunity cost is where you probably find the biggest mistake um so i mean at the beginning I had such a small amount of money that I'm sure I did make financial mistakes in how I invested or getting a slow start in saving, and I, I feel like those mistakes were small scale. But if you consider, like, well, I could have bought a home and then it could have appreciated by a million dollars, and that ends up being a very expensive mistake. So uh, that that's kind of my mindset. I started like I started saving kind of as an amateur and I started investing as an amateur, and they were like there were many mistakes in that.
2: Okay. Um, what's your, your last words of advice to somebody? If you had to give advice about what worked for you and someone was just starting on their path, what would you give? What would you say?
0: Uh, so I I could sort of give an example of a category of mistake I've made. And I think it's a mistake maybe I've made multiple times and I'm maybe other people make this mistake too. Uh, so like suppose you hear some good financial advice like, hey, you shouldn't uh, try to pick stocks to beat the market. The, the mistake is not acting on that information right away. So maybe what you should do is you should go, you know, revisit your strategy for investing and, and decide what's the right path forward. But if instead you just sort of don't think about it or you don't see the the flaw in, in what you're doing, like you can you can easily kind of know in your head the the good advice that you're hearing, but then you can not act on it for multiple years. and.
2: Yeah, yeah, great advice. Well, Christopher, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time and sharing your story. Net worth of 1.1. More than that, if you count the restricted stock units or, right, the, the stock units. Uh, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks, Christopher. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.